Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week's message, entitled Love the City, is given by guest speaker, Pastor Jay O'Brien of Scarlet City Church. This is the first sermon in our three-week series called, What's Love Got to Do With It? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Gehenna mobile app. Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. You can use the app, your smartphone, I'll assume you're not checking Facebook. Uh, or you can use your hard copy Bible, and if you're having trouble finding it, just go to the books that sound like Star Wars characters. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Kenobi, and then Jonah. And we're going to be in Jonah 4, verses 1 to 11. And I'm excited to be here this morning for a few reasons. First, I'm excited because I love this church. A new life had an impact on my life. Megan and I, when we moved to Columbus, Ohio to plant the church, new life became a key partner. And we worshiped here at this community and got to know a number of you and maintain relationships with many, especially some of the church leadership here. Pastor Steve served on our external board at one season and was an integral partner, maintains an integral mentor in my life. I'm thankful for his impact for me personally. We're thankful for this church, for you investing in Scarlet City, uh, sending people, sending money and resources, and just being praying for us and being a rock for us here in the city that supports us. Because sometimes when you're doing something new, that's what you need. You need a community of people that says, we're with you in this. So we are so thankful. Scarlet City wouldn't be what it is today. It may not even be here if it wasn't for the mission and vision of this church. So thank you for your commitment to multiplication. I'm also excited this morning because we're kicking off an incredibly important conversation. As Pastor Brian mentioned, we're starting a three-week series here called What's Love Got to Do With It? And I'm tempted to do a little dance. I'll refrain. But I will say this, that love has absolutely everything to do with it. Love has everything to do with the calling that God places on our lives. And God's love has everything to do with how we are transformed and empowered to extend that love to a hurting world. And this conversation is incredibly pivotal in this season. Everyone agrees that in our culture and in our communities, it is increasingly being defined by hate and fear and division. And everyone also agrees that the problem is other people. That we're angry about the people that are perpetuating anger. But there seems to be an inability for many of us to consider our role in the matter. And unfortunately, the culture looks at the church and it sees us missing. And sometimes it sees the church perpetuating division itself. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the evangelical church. I'm talking about us. And so this morning, we're going to press into the gospel and see how does the gospel shape our life that we can love and address the big issues that our cities face. And I love this topic. I love the city. The city is core to the vision of our church. The city is core to my passion personally. And I believe the city, ministering in the city, reflects the heart of God. There's a number of t- 
text we could have gone to. We could have looked at Jeremiah 29, where God's people are taken into captivity in Babylon, and there are religious leaders who are saying, no, don't enter into the city. Stay out of the city. It's messy. And God, through his prophet Jeremiah, says, no, seek the peace, the shalom, and prosperity of the city, because when the city prospers, you too will prosper. We could look at the book of Acts, where the apostle Paul and other disciples, apostles, are ministering in urban areas. We could look at the epistles, where Paul is writing to churches in urban communities. The city was strategic for God's mission to reach the world. It was strategic then, and it remains strategic today but we're going to look at Jonah. Jonah 4, verses 1 through 11, where we find this fascinating contrast between God and his heart and his love and his desire to reach a city and his own prophet who stands in the way, the moral person who stands in the way of God's grace going to the city. So let's look here. Jonah 4, verses 1 to 11, and just to set up the scene, Jonah's been running from God. God finally, through this fish, Gets Jonah to go to Nineveh to communicate the good news of faith in Yahweh. And the Ninevites repent. And here we pick up the scene in verse 1 of chapter 4. But the Ninevites' repentance, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, Jonah says, I knew it, God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you, well, do, you do well to be angry? How is this helping? Continues, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? For He said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. To understand the real core of what this story is about, what this chapter is about, in fact, what the entire story of Jonah is about. In fact, I would say the entire story of the Bible. To understand what it's all about, you can look at the last verse and the first verse in our text. Look at the last verse. It's an argumentative question that God poses to Jonah. But look at what he says. He says, and should not I pity Nineveh? The Hebrew term for pity is concern. Should I not have great concern for Nineveh, that great city? Nineveh was a great city. It was great in size, 120,000 persons, which at that time was a, was a dense urban community. And it was great in influence, economic influence. In fact, it ends with this statement, and, and Nineveh had much cattle. And you're thinking, a lot of 
cattle. I mean, is, is that the definition of a great city? Well, in an agrarian society, it is, because livestock was a symbol of wealth and prosperity. Then it was a great city in size, a great city in economic influence. It was also a great city in its wickedness. In fact, that's why Jonah was so angry that God extends grace. In verse 1, now back to the beginning, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's like Bible safe Christian talk for Jonah was incredibly pissed off <laughs> because the Ninevites were Jonah's enemy. The Ninevites had the reputation it maintains today to be one of the most wicked cities in the history of the world. Just a little, a little tidbit of that expression. They, they torture people and they would skin them alive. Just Google Nineveh and atrocities, but wait to, don't do it after lunch. <laughs> you won't, food won't sit well. Nineveh was a, was a wicked city and Jonah looks at this and he's like, God, why? What are, we, what are you doing? This city is working against your will. They've killed your people, some of whom Jonah would have known personally. Why are you extending grace to them? Jonah looks at the situation and says, God, what are you doing? What is happening? As Pastor Brian mentioned, um, my wife and I have two young boys, a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and so we're in that season of life. Those of you who have had young kids, you know exactly what I mean when I say that. Our four-year-old Bennett, he, uh, he loves to build things. And a recent uh, episode happened this past weekend, a normal occurrence in the O'Brien household where Bennett, our four-year-old, loves Legos, loves magnetiles, these little magnetic uh, building blocks. And, and he took his magnetiles and he crafted this like eight-story garage for all his Hot Wheels. He's excited about this. Yes, now there's a home for his Hot Wheels. And so he puts them in there and he's so excited. He goes, Daddy, Daddy, come look. Look at, look at what I built. And he'd go over, oh, Bennett, that's amazing. Mommy, come and see. Mommy, come look. Oh, Bennett, that's so amazing. You built this, the garage mahal for your, for your Hot Wheels. This is wonderful. Good job, Bennett. Great job. And then out from around the corner <laughs> comes his one-and-a-half-year-old brother, Jack. And Jack, smiling just as much as his older brother, Bennett, but for a completely different reason. <laughs> because Bennett's a builder, and Jack is an anti-builder. <laughs> he's a destroyer. And so he comes around, and Bennett knows he's, this has played out a number of times. Bennett's boxing him out. No, Jack, no, no, no. And Jack, do not destroy your brother's garage. You know, you know Jack, so finally he kind of pretend plays over to the side with the cars, but he's eyeing the garage and us. And eventually our guard gets let down. We're on the other side of the room, and Jack and his opportunity, this moment, finally, finally he can, he just full out runs and does a belly flop <laughs> on Bennett's garage. And Bennett in that moment, he sees it and it's like a horror film where you want to scream but nothing comes out. It's just five seconds of just silence. Finally he says, Bennett or Jack, what are you doing? What are you doing? And you can feel that, you know, this four-year-old, what he's thinking, he's thinking, Jack, I built this. I had a plan and I had a vision for this for my Hot Wheels. And, and part of the plan wasn't you come and destroying it. And we all know what that's like, not just because at some point when we were younger, we had a sibling or friend who came and broke something that we built, but we feel it in life. 
as we, especially as we grow older and we had these expectations, we had these plans, we had these dreams for how the world worked and the circumstances of our life, trials enter in, people enter in sometimes and they just seem to crush it. They do a belly flop on our dreams and our plans. And a lot of times we cry out to God, we call to God and say, where are you, God? How can this be part of your plan? I'm missing it, God. Where's your work here? Because we're trying to do this. And where does, the, where does the struggle fit in to your work, God? Where are you at? That's what Jonah's saying right here when he's displeased. God, what is happening? Where, where are you working? How can this be redeemable? This is what many in our culture are feeling today. And some of the struggles, struggles of our age. And we're looking at the world, wondering, God, is, are you at work? How are you gonna make this right? Many of our African-American brothers and sisters have been feeling the pain of loneliness, feeling unheard with some of the injustices that they experience, and they're wondering, God, I mean, how are you gonna work? Some in my own church just don't even seem to think that my pain's valid. What do I do, God? Where are you at work in this situation? I experienced this personally in planting a church. We, we moved here to Columbus with this vision to reach the city, to reach the city socially, culturally, spiritually. Great plan. I had a great plan, good PowerPoint. And I was able, really able to talk about it very well. And uh, I was really excited about it. And, um, you know, in fact, the last time I preached here at New Life, five years ago, I mean, a lot of, we hadn't even started yet. Lots of great ideas. But a part of that plan wasn't one of our pastors losing their almost three-year-old son who would be hit by a car. Part of that plan wasn't experiencing leadership struggles, relational struggles in the church. That wasn't part of the plan. And I would say to God, God, what are you doing? How is this part of your work? We're trying to do a good thing. We're trying to reach the city. How is this helping? And here's what I realized. I was 27. I was so foolish. <laughs> So I say to Steve, who thought it was a good idea to send me out to plant a church? I'll probably say the same thing five years from now. But um, what I learned is this, is that it is just like God to take the circumstances of our lives that crush our plans for him to do a work in our heart because that's God's work. If God's ever gonna do a work through us, he's gonna start by doing a work in us. And so as we talk about reaching the city, I can't, there's no conversation I love more. As we talk about reaching the city, you need to understand it starts with God reaching you. And if we're gonna have any, if we're gonna do, if we're gonna have any lasting effectiveness, it happens when the church is awakened to the gospel. And not just that we can talk about it, that we can just pass the quiz of what the gospel is, but the gospel becomes real to us personally here. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, how the gospel, how God's love reaches you and empowers you and me to love and reach our city. Three ways, three ways this morning. First is this, God's love empowers us to pursue God's calling over worldly comfort. God's love empowers us to pursue God's calling. It empowers us to, to go after God's presence. In verse one, Jonah was angry and he continues in verse two, and he prayed to the Lord. He said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when yet I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
Earlier, God calls Jonah, he calls him to go to Nineveh to minister there, to communicate the good news of Yahweh and the salvation he offers and the grace that he offers. And Jonah is faced with this decision to follow God, to God's presence in Nineveh, this wicked city, as we were talking about, this desert, or to go to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is opposite in Nineveh in every respect. It's opposite geographically. It literally goes the opposite direction, uh, but it's also opposite culturally. Nineveh, one ancient Near East scholar comments on Nineveh, or I'm sorry, Tarshish, that it was an ancient paradise. King Solomon, when he sends a, 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 I almost said envoy there, a convoy there, they returned back with gold, silver, ivory, and I don't think it was soap. I think it was different back then, but uh, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks. Monkeys and peacocks. It's a good place. And so you can imagine Jonah now, he's at this port in Joppa, faced with this decision. Nineveh, desert, um, might kill me, uh, persecution, Tarshish, gold, silvery, ivory, silver, ivory, monkeys, peacocks for crying out loud. This is where you vacation. And you can imagine, what is Jonah thinking right here? He's, here's what he, here's probably, might be what he's thinking. You know what, God? Here I am, I am a prophet. I've been obeying you, even when it's hard, and your people, God, can be hard, okay? And I don't deserve this. I don't deserve Nineveh. I don't deserve that, God. I deserve Tarshish. I deserve these comforts. I deserve vacation. And we all know, we all know that feeling, don't we? When you look at something, and you think, if I have that, if I'm at that place, then I'll have comfort, then life will be right. Maybe you're a single person and you recently broke up with your boyfriend and you need to make it official, so you go on Facebook. Change that relationship status. And while you're on Facebook, you notice the picture of your friend whose boyfriend bought her a pony. Just cause. He's that kind of boyfriend, you're gonna buy a pony. And on the pony dangles some Tiffany jewelry and you know, she's like hugs, best boyfriend. And then you go down a little more and another friend is engaged with the biggest diamond you've ever seen. And, and, you, and you're thinking, where do I get that? Where do I get that, at church? Do I get that boyfriend at church? Because the boys at church, why aren't they asking me out? You know, just a little tip guys, you know, ask some girls out, but uh, that's another <laughs> conversation. But uh, you know, where do you get this boyfriend? that will get me the pony. Or maybe um, come winter, because summer doesn't last forever here in Columbus, we found out. My wife is a native Floridian. I, I, you guys are awesome. Um, but here's the interesting thing. I'm the bigger whiner. Come February, Megan, she's cool. I'm like, oh man, it's cold. It's like, what did you expect? Uh, and it gets cold outside, you get sick of driving in the ice and the snow and you're inside and everyone's sick, kids are sick and screaming and then you go on Instagram and you see your f friend from college who's working down in South Florida at the Tiki Hut, you know, <laughs> office life and you're just like, oh, how do I get that? Or you're at the uh, cookout on July 4th, hanging with your neighbors and one of your friends starts raving about the new church that they're a part of. And, and this is the church that's gonna right all the wrongs of all the other churches. I mean, you know, they talk about things like community and love, like no other church talks about that. And, 
and they have it all figured out. A bunch of people, I mean, it's kind of messy, but everyone perfectly loves everyone. Perfect pastor and preacher, perfect sermons, music, exactly what everyone wants to hear. No struggle, no division. Everyone's perfect and great. And you think, man, you know, I've been serving at my church. People don't get me. People don't understand me. I need that church. I need that perfect church. And, and this is how a lot of us look at life, all of us at some level. We just want to upgrade. It's like, can I trade it in? for Like we upgrade our phone. Can I upgrade my spouse? You know, can I upgrade my job? Can I upgrade my neighborhood? In fact, I would just all around like a better life. Can I just upgrade my life? And really, this is, when we look at these images, it's like a form of life pornography. Because porn is an image of a false reality that we try to find comfort in. And here's what we need. Here's what we need. I, Eugene Peterson, a wonderful pastor, he's writing to church leaders because church leaders sometimes can struggle with this, thinking some other location will be what makes it all work. And here's what he says. This is, he says, what we all need is for someone to show up at the port in Joppa when we're faced with this idea that this will bring me happiness. We need someone to show up at the port of Joppa to say Tarshish is a lie. It's a big lie. The idea that any marriage, that better kids, that a better neighborhood, that somewhere else, that that will bring you the joy and happiness and comfort that you need apart from God, that is a lie, friends. We were creating the image of God. And our heart was wired to find joy and meeting and comfort and hope in Jesus. Not another place. Not a nice vacation-y life. It's a lie. And here, but here's, here's what this has to do with ministering to the city. Because a lot of us are struggling to minister in, in the community because we're worried about our comforts and our things. God, when he calls Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the Christian faith, Abraham, he calls him, he says, Abraham, I'm forming a people. And I'm gonna bless you, Abraham. And I'm gonna bless you, and here's why. Because I want you to kick back and be like, man, God, you are awesome. Thank you. Hanging out here, gonna hang out in your land, God, and enjoy these blessings and look at the world and be like, Thankful I'm not like them. Is that what God says? No. God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you can be a blessing. Any material blessing you have, you need to know that that is a gift from God. And it is a gift not for you to just kick back and enjoy, but it is a tool and it is a means to be a blessing to the world. And if you don't get that, that gift will be a curse and it will damn you. If you are living, pursuing worldly wealth, you are missing God's heart. And you see, this is the contrast here because the American dream and the American life says this. The American dream and American life says this. Accumulating material wealth is for personal comfort. And so life becomes a means of accumulating things so I can kick back and enjoy it. My security, my comfort. But the gospel life, no. The gospel's life says material wealth is an opportunity to steward for the blessing and flourishing of other people. And so here's my question. What are you running from and what are you running toward? Jonah is running from God's presence to worldly comfort. 
Are you running? Are you running from God's call? Are you running from God's presence in order to make your life about comfort? Or are you running from materialism? Are you running from this life that says it's all about hoarding and for myself? Are you running from that life to God's calling to take your possessions, your life, the grace of God, and extend it to other people? First, we see that God empowers us to pursue his call. Next, we see this. God's love empowers us to extend grace rather than judgment. Extend grace rather than judgment. Jonah is angry. He's angry at God because God has shown grace. And God says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah, and then in, in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah Grace has just affected these people and they're experiencing Yahweh's love and deliverance. And Jonah, rather than staying and celebrating this miracle, rather than staying and discipling these people, they say, listen, it's not just about a momentary decision. This is a life. This is not just believing the gospel so you're good. This is about how does the gospel shape everything about you. Rather than Jonah saying to celebrate with them and to point them further to Yahweh, Jonah leaves the city pointing down in judgment. Jonah leaves the city to point in and hoping for judgment because Jonah views the world. He divides people into one or two camps. He divides people between the bad people and the good people. Jonah divides based on those who are evil, like the Ninevites, and the good moral people like himself. But here's the problem. That's not how God views people. We see it right here in the book of Jonah. I mean, think about it. If I were to tell you, hey, there's a book in the Bible, there's God, and there's two kinds of people. There's a moral, religious person, Jonah, who, I mean, it doesn't get any morally, excuse me. It doesn't get any more morally superior than Jonah. Jonah is the one you want your sons to grow up to be like. Jonah is the one you want your daughters to marry. I mean, this is the moral guy, the leader, the preacher, the pastor of God's people, prophet. You have him. Then you have the Ninevites, the most wicked people in the history of humankind. Who's going to align with God? Well, in the story, it's the Ninevites. It's interesting because Jesus also, how does Jesus divide people? We see in the Sermon on the Mount, amazing discourse. And Jesus says things like this. You've heard that it was said, if you commit murder, that that's a sin. But I say to you, anyone who hates someone in their own heart has committed murder in their heart. What Jesus is saying throughout that is this. He's saying, listen, you, you want to divide between the evil and the good? Let me tell you how God divides. He divides between people who think that they're righteous and those who know they need God's grace. Jonah, the very prophet of God, the moral person, misses the whole point. It's about grace. But here's the amazing thing. Here's the good news. You see, because what this is saying is this. All of us, all of us are like the Ninevites, just in varying degrees. We're all the Ninevites. But God doesn't look down at you and me and say, oh, the Ninevites, judge them. No, God sent his son into the world. You see, years later, another prophet would rise who would be taken out of the city. Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. 
Jonah goes out of the city to look down in judgment. Jesus goes out of the city to experience judgment. Jonah goes out of the gates, out of the city to condemn people. Jesus goes out of the gate to be condemned, to be condemned for people so that we could be brought in. And that's grace, friends. That's love. And when that grace gets a hold of you, it, it can't not change you. It can't not change you. Do you see this is so counter our world? You see, our world is always pointing the finger of blame at somebody else. It's always someone else's fault. And what the gospel does, it humbles us. It says, no, you know what? I'm dependent. I'm dependent on God for salvation. I don't come to God like a Boy Scout or Girl Scout with a vest of all the good church things I do. Like, here's my Bible reading badge. Badge God, look at me. Here's my church attendance. Uh, here's my giving. Here's my leadership. And God, oh, whoa. Jay, wow, look at you. You have so many badges. Now you're worthy of my grace. That's not how it works. I show up to God. All, the prophet Isaiah said, all our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. All of us are like the Ninevites in various degrees. We need God's grace, and that should humble us. And so now we enter into the discourse, the political discourse that wants to put people on one side or the other. And we enter in with a whole new way of relating. We enter in as listeners. We're not partisan to just a political party. We're partisan to our king. And his mode of operation is quite different. And you know, I, even, I know right here, this is probably uncomfortable for many of you. You're probably even sitting there thinking like, which side is he on? Who's, the, who's this pastor on? I mean, he's in Clintonville. I know that's a real liberal community. Has he been converted to that or something? You know, which side, which side is, is Jay on? Because that's just how many of us are wired to think. And I just want you to know that the gospel, when it enters your life, you, enter, you engage in a completely new way. At our congregation at Scarlet City, there's Republicans, Democrats, and we love it. It's a beautiful mess. It's fun. Political season, pray for us a little bit, but it's great because we need each other. We need each other. Diversity is an opportunity, an opportunity to learn. Grace humbles us. We become better listeners. It creates a new culture. We're not just pointing the finger of blame at everyone else. Grace empower, God's love empowers grace. God's love empowers us to pursue his calling. And lastly, God's love empowers us to serve rather than merely consume. Verse nine, we see Jonah, God provides this plant to give him shade and then God takes it away and Jonah gets angry about it. He says, and God responds, do you do well to get angry for this plant? He said, yes, I do well, angry, angry enough to die. Like, Jonah, come on. And verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? It's amazing. Here's Jonah. What's his concern? His concern is this plant. And God's concern is people. Jonah is all upset about this plant that he had no hand in making. God made the plant, ironically. But God made somewhat, something else too, and that's people. God says, my chief concern are people. That's why I love cities. God wants to work in a city, not just because it's strategic, and it is. When you reach cities, you just don't reach individuals. You reach a whole region because cities shape culture. But God also loves and wants to minister in cities because cities have people. 
a lot of people. And a lot of times when we see cities, we see, uh, we see inconvenience, we see traffic, and we see congestion. And when God sees cities, he sees souls. See that traffic? That's a lot of people right there. A lot of people created the image of God. A lot of people who Jesus shed his blood for. God says, you're, you're prioritizing this plant. My priority is people. And that's why I love and want to minister in cities. And now Jonah, of course, the heart of his concern about the plant isn't just that he loves plants. That's always fine. But it's because this plant was providing him shade. And Jonah's upset. He's like, God, oh man, you're taking my shade away. It's getting hot. Please, God, please. And what is this? This is just so selfish. Jonah's more concerned for his own discomfort, for his own shade, than he is to see a city experience the shade of God's grace. And we can look at that and we say, oh, Jonah, you are being so selfish. Quit pitying the plant. And yet we pity the plant all the time. We pity the plant when we focus on ourselves. We pity the plant when a homeless person asking for money is an inconvenience to us. We pity the plant when we view refugees as a threat to our safety and not people creating the image of God coming here for us to serve. We pity the plant when we think that our church is just, just exists for our preferences and luxuries. When we just want the music we want to hear, the sermon we want to hear, the kids' ministry that we want it to be, when, when church just becomes all about us and our preferences, we're pitying the plant. That's pitying the plant, friends. But here's what you need to know. The church, our legacy is totally different. It's amazing. It's so, it's amazing. The legacy of the gospel, the church, the people of God relating to cities is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, uh, Rodney Stark, a, a historian, look at le- what he talks about the church relating to cities. Look at this. This is us. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hear this. He says, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with widows and orphans, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. Christians, they didn't just say, hey, you're welcome here if you're different. Christians said, we stand with you. Your pain's our pain. Your struggle's our struggle. He continues, people had been enduring catastrophes for centuries without the aid of Christian theology or social structures. Hence, I am by no means suggesting that the misery of the ancient world caused the advent of Christianity. What I am going to argue is that once Christianity did appear, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. For what Christians brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. This is our legacy. If you're about civil rights and social justice, which I hope we are, you understand that's a gospel movement. That's a gospel culture. That's a gospel endeavor. That's why our calling to minister 
in the division that we experience culturally is so important because it's a gospel issue. It's not just a good idea. It's Jesus' idea. And it's at the core of who he wants us to be. The gospel is all about breaking down walls. The gospel is all about reconciliation, reconciling us to God and to one another. And so here's how I want to close. It can be easy to hear this and be like, oh, great. Uh, good ideas. But what does it mean practically? I want to point you in two directions. One, this brings a collective calling, a collective calling. We're to create a new culture as a church, a, new, a culture shaped by the grace of God and the gospel. It means how do we, again, how do we look at a church? Do we see ourselves as a cruise ship sitting outside the city looking at it like, oh man, must be tough out there. Thankfully we have our boat. Uh, do we see the church as uh, abandoning ship, you know, a, a lifeboat to get out of the danger? Or do we see the church as a rescue mission? People not fleeing conflict, but entering in. People who enter into the injustices of our city, who enter into the divisions and repair, that bring shalom, peace, because that's God's vision. It's peace, peace personally and peace socially. Are we creating that kind of culture that can minister like that? Or are we just worried about our own needs? And then lastly, what does it mean for you personally? And I would invite everyone to do this. Consider what is one issue that you can be invested in in your city? There's a number of great ones. Maybe it's racial reconciliation. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's ministering like IFI to international students. Maybe it's ministering to the poor. Maybe it's uh, ministering to the elderly. Maybe it's ministering to people with disabilities. Maybe it's ministering to people with addictions. There's a lot of opportunity and then I want you to engage. Engage in a few ways. First, by being a learner. Be a learner. Uh, a lot of times we can perpetuate problems when we don't understand the core issues of them. Poverty is a great example. We can perpetuate poverty by not understanding what poverty really is. There's great resources. You can talk to your leadership here. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. There's a documentary called Poverty, Inc. Bring awareness of the ways we can perpetuate this problem unknowingly. We can have great intentions, but actually do damage. So be a learner. Maybe it's racial reconciliation. That's an issue for me personally that I've grown to be burdened over. And I entered into it a few years ago really ignorant, very ignorant. And thankfully, God brought African-American pastors and leaders to come and to help me understand, to understand the history. There are great there's great resources to learn about any issue you want to engage in. And be a learner. Second, be discerning. What is God calling you to do? There's a lot of great opportunities and you're gonna, like me, I wanna do it all. Like, I wanna be invested everywhere, I can't. Be discerning, what can, what can, how can God work in your life to address one issue and then be committed, be an advocate and don't lose heart because it's so easy to, you look at the problems of the world, the problems of the city, you're like, God, where do we begin? Uh, you, you wanna give up. You're like, man, we've been talking about this for years, racial reconciliation, it just seems to get worse. Poverty, when's that going away? God, and then you, you, you want to give up. You want to throw in the towel and say, it's not worth it. I can't do it. I'm just going back to the cruise ship where it's comfortable and safe and easy and I can actually kind of have a plan and try to control things. Because when you enter into the city, it's, you can't control it all. Don't, get, don't lose heart. 
don't lose heart. We won't. These problems weren't created in a day. They're not going to be solved in a day, but progress can be made. And the Spirit of God is powerful to work through you. You can't solve all the problems, so you can be a solution to at least one. And this is the heart of God. This is the heart of God. God's work in the world is to extend his peace. And it begins by transforming you. Jonah, we're left to wonder, did Jonah, was Jonah changed? I think he was. Who wrote this book? And it closes, it doesn't close with a lot of closure because I think Jonah's opening it up to you and me. How will we respond? And I know this morning there's a lot of us here, a lot of us are Jonah's, and we've been pitying the plant, and we've been angry about things that are taking away our comfort, and I get it. I know. I mean, that's our human tendency. God's heart is bigger, and it is glorious, and he wants to free you from the bondage of our, of our moralism and our selfishness that we can bask in the glory of his grace and live that out in our world. And our world needs it. It needs it. It needs us. It needs us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have shown grace to each of us through your son. And when you talk about justice, it's not just some theological idea. When you talk about injustice, it's not just some abstract concept. No, your son came to bear the greatest weight of injustice. The perfect man, only perfect man ever to live, to be hung on a cross. And he did it so that we could enter into right relationship with you and that we could take that grace and gospel to our world God, help us, help us to be people of justice. Not just as it relates to our salvation, but as it relates to our lives and our city. May we be a humble people, a servant-minded people, a people more in love with your presence than worldly comfort, and send us in the power of your spirit to bring your gospel to bear in Columbus and around the world. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.